Blog Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host. My name is Kenneth Anderson, and uh, well, my first guest tonight will be Dr. Amanda Ryman from the University of California, Berkeley, and my second guest will be Dr. Ed Wilson, who works with a non-12-step treatment program in Los Angeles, California. Before we start, I want to do a little plug for our organization. The HAMS Harm Reduction Network is a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits. It's the first and only support group for people who drink alcohol that is based on the principles of harm reduction. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We have a book called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. You can find information about it if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. We also always accept donations if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash donate. Our first guest tonight, Dr. Amanda Ryman from UC Berkeley, specializes in cannabis studies and cannabis. She has studied a quite in-depth cannabis substance substitution for alcoholism and other addictions. How are you tonight, Amanda? Hi, Ken. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Could you tell us a little bit about your research on cannabis substitution for alcoholism and other addictions? Absolutely. Um, So I conducted this study back in 2007-2008 and it was a survey research study of a sample of 350 medical cannabis patients um, at Berkeley Patients Group, which is a medical cannabis dispensary in Berkeley, California, where I work as the director of research. And we wanted to find out a little bit more about our patients' cannabis use, um, how they were using cannabis, and maybe some ways they were using cannabis that we hadn't previously thought of. And there had been previous research by top, uh, Dr. Todd McBaria on the use of cannabis as a substitute for alcohol. So I was curious to see if that kind of pattern was emerging in a medical cannabis patient sample. So I administered a survey to 350 patients. And what we found was that the drinking patterns of the sample were very similar to the drinking patterns you see in the United States currently. Uh, 53% of the sample uh, drinks alcohol, uh, with 2.6 being the average number of drinking days per week and 2.9 being the average number of drinks on occasion. Um, We found a quarter of the sample currently using tobacco, with uh, 9.5 being the average number of cigarettes smoked daily, and 11% reporting having used a non-prescribed, non-over-the-counter drug in the past 30 days with cocaine, MDMA, and Vicodin being reported most frequently. So you do see a higher rate of non-prescribed, non-over-the-counter drug use in the medical cannabis sample than you see in the general population. So I did ask um, in the survey if patients were using or had used cannabis as a substitute for either alcohol, illicit, or prescription drugs. And I defined the substitute as the conscious decision to choose to use one substance instead of another for a myriad of reasons, whether it's perceived safety or effectiveness. Um, And so that was kind of the way the question was asked on the survey. Uh, The results show that 40% of the sample say that they have used cannabis as a substitute for alcohol, 26% as a substitute for illicit drugs, 
and 66% as a substitute for prescription drugs. And most commonly people were saying that cannabis had less adverse side effects than these other substances, that cannabis led to better symptom management. And something particularly interesting around alcohol was the report that there was less withdrawal potential from cannabis. And so that is why patients chose cannabis instead of another substance. Well, alcohol does ha- can have severe withdrawal symptoms that are deadly, potentially, uh, but there are no similar symptoms from cannabis withdrawal, are there? Correct, correct. And, you know, the, the fact that you're absolutely right, that the withdrawals from alcohol uh, do have the potential to be fatal, um, that cannabis does not have that same risk. Um, additionally, Cannabis, because of its therapeutic effects, can actually help in the treatment of alcohol withdrawal because cannabis itself helps symptoms such as tremor or seizure, nausea, anxiety, insomnia, which are often associated with withdrawing from alcohol or other drugs. Oh, I had not heard about that before. Has that been clinically studied at all, the uh, effects of cannabis on alcohol withdrawal? It has not. It has not. And, you know, that's one of the things that's really missing here is that, you know, we're definitely hearing patients report that this has been something that's been very successful to them, uh, for them in, in terms of not only helping them through withdrawal, but then helping them maintain either sobriety from alcohol or a lower rate of alcohol use. But we really have limited research in this area. You know, we, we have prevalence estimates and self-reports but there's a real need for research that is comparing groups of medical cannabis patients and people that are in more traditional types of alcohol and drug treatment to see if they have different outcomes. We need a study of medical cannabis patients over time who are using um, cannabis as a substitute for alcohol to see if it's as effective one year out as it is five years out or ten years out. So, you know, that is where I hope we can take some of this research, but as you know, the idea of suggesting cannabis as a treatment for addiction is very controversial still. Yes. Uh, some people would say you can't give alcoholics marijuana or you'll just have them addicted to two substances instead of one. Yes, that's a very, very common claim. Um, but it's interesting because when we look at our behaviors and you know the behaviors of the general population, we substitute behaviors quite commonly because of our beliefs about relative safety. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we might choose to eat fruit for dessert instead of cookies, and we don't worry about people consuming too much of both. We think, well, that's good. If they want to choose something that's healthier, a healthier alternative, we promote that. Um, people use gum to reduce the number of cigarettes that they smoke during a day. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is not a, a foreign concept. It's actually something that people do every day in their daily lives. But there's something about suggesting the use of an illicit drug, regardless of the purpose, that seems to be controversial to people, I think. So is there a lot of evidence that people who substitute uh, cannabis for alcohol reduce their drinking? Just anecdotally and from what we've heard from survey studies, uh, that's really, you know, as far as we've gone. Like I said, um, Dr. Todd McGaria had done some previous work in this area, and he had a single case study of a woman who was an alcoholic who was prescribed cannabis and, and, and given additionally abuse 
to dissuade her from drinking and had positive improvements across the board in terms of her physical health and psychological health, her level of functioning. Um, but again, you know, this is a single case study, so we really mm-hmm. haven't seen something like this tested on a broader level. Yes, I've also uh, had uh, numerous uh, anecdotal reports from uh, people I know, friends of mine, who say that uh, they would they've quit drinking alcohol entirely or greatly reduced it when they had cannabis available. Um, They have said that they wish they had cannabis available all the time because they were having problems with withdrawal and other things, uh, big problems with alcohol or problems with getting into fights when drinking. And they did not find the same problems accompanying cannabis use. And they just didn't feel a need to drink when they had cannabis as a substitute. Absolutely, and this is something we hear reported quite often. Um, You know, you have to wonder if individuals were given an equal opportunity to choose cannabis um, and alcohol as they were coming up through their teenage and young adult years, you know, would we be able to avoid some of the issues that come with people that have problems handling alcohol in their system but yet continue to drink because that's kind of what is socially acceptable. And there has been a campaign um, called the Safer Campaign run on college campuses to encourage the leaders of college campuses to equalize the punishments for underage drinking and cannabis use on campus so that, you know, teenagers or or young adults in college were going to make the decision to drink uh, underage, which we know occurs on college campuses, can uh, make the choice to choose cannabis instead without worrying of an elevated punishment. And, you know, this is really a way to combat the binge drinking and alcohol overdoses that we see on college campuses and to allow students to choose cannabis, which does not pose those same risks. And as you said, uh, similarly to things like fighting um, and other kinds of behaviors, injuries uh, that can be related to excessive or irresponsible alcohol use. Well, I think choice is a very important thing. Uh, For myself personally, uh, I can't smoke marijuana. Uh, It always gives me severe depression immediately on ingesting it. I don't have similar problems with alcohol if I put limits on when I drink so that I don't drink too much every week. But uh, I think it's really important that people should have a choice of their recreational substance because some people will find uh, one substance is more compatible for them than another substance. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, in in our daily lives, we make those kinds of choices all the time, uh, particularly around the foods that we eat. You know, if Mm -hmm. a food gives us a bad reaction or an allergy, we don't continue to eat it because our body does not like it. And so when you limit choice, then you really are pushing individuals to consume things that they know are not fit for who they are. But when you really limit choice in that way, yet you put so much pressure in society on recreation and social lubrication, it puts individuals in a really tough position, um, especially in areas where cannabis is not accessible. Um, You know, we happen to be in a situation out here in the Bay Area where we do have medical marijuana, where individuals can access marijuana for reasons such as addiction or alcohol withdrawals. And so, you know, you really do see what happens when that choice opens up, and what you see are these high reports of substitution. Yes, this puts me in mind of one of our guests from last week who was from LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, 
and he yeah. told us that you know his experiences and the experiences of many law enforcement officials and officers is just that the prohibition is causing more problems than it's solving. Um, I can't remember who it was, but uh, I think one of our presidents once said that no drug law should cause more problems than the drug itself. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 this is you know kind of goes along with you know the emergence of this substitution behavior um, is that you know individuals really feel that they don't have a choice and that they are pushed towards um, one drug and you know. People that specialize in law enforcement, they see what happens when behaviors are driven underground and when we aren't allowed to talk about them in an honest and open way. And, you know, there have been claims about um, substances like cannabis being linked to mental health issues, and a lot of this is because individuals who have issues with mental health are not open about their cannabis use because they're afraid of the ramifications. And when people aren't open about their use, it's very difficult to give someone proper and well-rounded health and mental health treatment. So, you know, the more that we drive these behaviors underground and the more we criminalize them, the less opportunities we have to really treat people um, in the realities that they're living. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about cannabis substitution for prescription drugs? So oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, you know, this is a very, very common occurrence. Estimates have been between about 66% and 74% of the medical cannabis patient population is using cannabis in lieu of some prescription drug. And this is really important for a couple of reasons, um, you know, one being the safety aspect. So we know, I mean, anybody who watches television and sees advertisements for prescription drugs then here's the long list of potential side effects. And some of them are quite serious, including potential mm -hmm. death. So we know that there's a real risk out there with taking pharmaceutical drugs, even though they do have their benefits. Cannabis does not have that risk. So that in and of itself makes it a, um, a very appetizing substitute for somebody who's making a decision about whether to go on Vicodin or to try cannabis. Another thing that makes cannabis a uh, very appetizing substitute is that because of the multiple symptoms cannabis can address, individuals have found the ability to reduce the numbers of prescription drugs that they're on and just use cannabis. So, for example, somebody who might be prescribed one drug for insomnia and another drug for anxiety and another drug for lower back pain, which is a combination we see quite often, they're able to replace those three drugs with just one, cannabis. And maybe they use one strain during the day to help with their pain, and maybe they use another strain at night to help with their insomnia. But they don't have to worry about the drug interactions occurring that can also bring even a heightened level of danger for an individual on multiple prescription drugs. The third aspect is that individuals that are on prescription drugs chronically throughout their lifetime have also a heightened danger of these drugs causing damage to the liver and causing damage to other major vital organs where we know that cannabis does not pose that same risk um, if used over time. So that, you know, all those reasons make it a very appealing substitute for prescription drugs. And then, again, you know, you don't have the same risk of dependence. The, the rate of dependence on prescription pain medicines, such as Vicodin and OxyContin, I mean, is really going through the roof 
And so, you know, the fact that you can reduce the amount of those drugs that you're ingesting and use cannabis, you know, to, to substitute is, um, is very, very helpful for a lot of people. Is there any historical precedent for doctors prescribing cannabis before it was outlawed in the United States? You know, well, cannabis used to be in most medicines. You know, before the uh, laws started occurring about um, medicines having to have all the ingredients on their labels and really having to be transparent about what was going in them, you had all kinds of things going in these elixirs and, you know, these cure-alls, including cannabis, including opium, including cocaine. Um, But, you know, cannabis had always been in kind of a separate category, partially because our bodies produce chemicals that mimic the chemicals in cannabis, but also because it is so easy to grow and cultivate and because people didn't report the same kind of dependent issues that they did with cocaine-based products or especially opium-based products. So cannabis has had a very long history um, medicinally, and it was really just when the United States decided to make it a Schedule One drug and that it, it stopped, you know, that kind of that progress, at least in the United States. Um, but I would say it was really a medicine first. As far as, you know, doctors prescribing it, you know, that is something that's still a very touchy subject. Um, you know, doctors can't legally prescribe it now. They can only recommend it. So, you know, that's an issue that we're still dealing with, and we're really trying to educate doctors so that they do feel more comfortable talking to their patients about it. Okay. Can you tell us something about uh, cannabis substitution for illicit drugs? Well, I think that follows very similarly along the lines of alcohol, except in this situation we're dealing with two types of substances that are both stigmatized and illicit, um, whereas, you know, with alcohol you have one licit drug versus cannabis, which is an illicit drug. Um, so for, you know, the um, the more illicit drugs, things like cocaine, things like methamphetamine, methamphetamine and heroin, uh, individuals have absolutely substituted cannabis. It's more difficult to study this phenomenon because the rates of use of cocaine, methamphetamine, um, and those types of drugs are so low in the general population that, you know, we're really talking about not that very large of a sample to begin with. But we do hear self-reports um, of individuals using cannabis to both deal with the withdrawal symptoms from these drugs and also to help with the maintenance. Um, Some of these drugs have very high levels of craving associated with relapse potential. So the ability to use cannabis to control a craving or to get through a craving has saved a lot of individuals from relapse, which, as you know, you know, relapse is not just a physical behavior, but it brings with it all kinds of emotional and psychological Mm -hmm. feelings. So being able to avoid that um, by using cannabis can be very helpful to somebody who's trying to maintain the level of use in their life. So what what uh, direction is your research taking currently, and what's your future direction? What do you want to look at next? Well, oh, everything. <laughs> is that an answer? Um, well, yes. the study that I did at Berkeley Patients Group on substitution was actually replicated in Canada at four dispensaries. So we just finished uh, data collection, uh, 400 new cases of patients asking them about their substitution practices. And that data is currently being analyzed. 
And so we're hoping very soon to start writing um, up some interpretations of that data to see, you know, now that we have 750 people in our sample, do we see different substitution patterns? Are there differences between Canadians and Americans in terms of their substitution? So I'm really excited to get a look at this data and see, you know, what more we can learn about substitution. You know, kind of here on the home front, um, I'm really investigating some of the harm reduction-based programs that different dispensaries are offering. Uh, you know, dispensaries that operate as health service models and organizations, such as the one I work for, offer a host of services for their patients in addition to cannabis. And a lot of these dispensaries are starting to offer harm reduction and substance use-based uh, treatment programs for medical cannabis patients, and I'm sure this is something you've mentioned on your show, but, you know, kind of individuals that don't fit into the mm -hmm. typical AA mm -hmm. model of care oftentimes find themselves kind of lost and looking for the appropriate type of service for them. So for mm -hmm. medical cannabis patients, we find that they really do enjoy the mutual health atmosphere that mm -hmm. comes with an AA type of treatment, but they do want to be able to be open about their cannabis use. Mm -hmm. They want to be around other individuals that understand um, how cannabis is being used as a substitute. So I've seen these types of programs be held in dispensaries, and I'm very interested to start conducting program evaluations so that we can get a better idea of exactly what mechanism is being used to help these individuals um, maintain the level of drinking and drug use that works best for them. That's very interesting. Um there are some harm reduction groups that have been conducted for quite a while in San Francisco uh, at the uh, Harm Reduction Therapy Center with uh, Jeannie Little and Pat Denning. And I know they're also, Terry Morris is also doing some. She's going to be on our show in a few weeks and tell us about her group. It's, uh, it's a methamphetamine support group uh, for active users and uh, harm reduction techniques and uh, so these are really interesting developments that we have going. Well, Amanda, thank you very much for being on our show. Oh, uh, my pleasure, Ken, anytime. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to hang up on you now and do a little blurb for our program, and then I'm going to take our next caller, our next interview guest. Okay, thanks, Ken. Thank you. Okay. As I've said, I'm the uh, founder and CEO of the HAMS Harm Reduction Network. It's a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make a positive change in their drinking habits. We support any goal from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. You choose your own goal. It's harm reduction-based. Uh, we have a book out called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available at hamsnetwork.org slash book. You can buy it from Amazon. We, and we also take donations. If you want to donate, hamsnetwork.org slash donate. And I'm going to bring our next caller on now. Hello, Ed, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing tonight, Ed? Well, not bad for an old guy. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show tonight. Yeah, and it's good to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Okay, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do with uh, the non-12-step treatment program in Los Angeles? Uh, you're a partner with Mary Ellen Barnes, who was on our show last week. And tell us a little more about your program. Well, the program basically is an individual program. We work, unlike other programs, we work exclusively with individuals and couples. 
once in a while with an extended family, but that's very rare. We also work as a team, Dr. Barnes, Mary Ellen, and I. That's also unusual. It's a paradigm I first used in Minnesota about 25 years ago for a brief period of time. It worked well, but then I didn't have someone to do it with until uh, Mary Ellen and I began working this and setting this up about seven years ago. Um, Again, this works really well when we're working with couples because one person's drinking or substance abuse always affects the other, and frequently the other one doesn't realize that stopping the abuse is going to affect them as well. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this really makes for an interestingly effective paradigm. Uh, additionally, as I said, we only take one new client or couple a week. Uh, we spend 15 to 18 hours with people in that first week, and that really lets us individualize, you know, put together whatever mosaic of services is necessary or helpful or supportive to each client individually without regard of sort of any dogma that we're required to follow. Yes, I noticed that uh, your program has many different elements uh, to it. Uh, there's uh, pharmacotherapy like naltrexone and mm-hmm. uh, behavioral elements and motivational enhancement elements. So I thought it was very interesting that you can mi- mix and match things to match the individual. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, additionally, there's, you know, we do a fair amount of assertiveness training. We also look at nutritional and fitness aspects. Uh, We look at medical considerations. We look at interaction considerations. uh, But, again, because we're (coughs) working with individuals, we can custom design whatever is going to specifically work for an individual. The other thing that we do that is unusual is we base our program on individuals' strengths and interests and abilities, not on supposed weaknesses, powerlessnesses, and, you know, pseudo-diseases. So that that frees us to be a very positive, affirming approach rather than a negative and demeaning one. Okay, could you tell us a little bit about naltrexone and how you use that? Sure. Naltrexone is what's known as an opioid blocker. It blocks the receptors in the brain that normally are associated with opioids, but it's also uh, the receptors among the receptors that alcohol excites and is the cause for the buzz that most people get from alcohol. Um, Because they're no longer getting a buzz while they're taking naltrexone, they are less inclined to drink excessively or drink at all. The other thing it does, and again, the the reasons for it aren't clear particularly, but naltrexone in about 75% of our clients eliminates the cravings for alcohol. Now, this doesn't mean it's a magic bullet. Uh, we do mm-hmm. have clients who come in, they get their naltrexone and say, wow, this is great, <laughs> and we don't mm-hmm. see them again for two or three months. And then they come back and say, well, when I quit taking it, I went back to what I was doing before. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what Naltrexin does is it buys you a window of opportunity within which to make the sort of behavioral day-to-day life changes uh, you need to make to not go back to abusing alcohol. Um, You get to do that without being distracted by a lot of cravings. But as with anything else, if you stop doing it and you haven't made the changes, you go back to doing what you've always done. Because if you're not making changes in your life that work out better for you than drinking or drugging or overeating or whatever do, you're going to go right back to the behaviors that you find more rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that to be very true. You need to find, on the one hand, some ways to have fun without using alcohol, you need to enjoy your life, and then also you need to find ways to cope with negative things like depression or anxiety or difficult situations without turning to alcohol. So I think these are two things that, you know, everyone with a substance use issue probably needs to learn to deal with. Oh, yeah. The trouble is that substances work very quickly. And oh, yes. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, they work about instantly. Mm-hmm. You're feeling anxious, you toss down a couple of drinks, and the anxiety kind of goes away. Uh, there are certainly other ways to, you know, take care of anxiety, but they all take effort. They all take uh, paying attention, and they aren't, aren't all that quick and easy. Of course, the things that work for anxiety while requiring time, attention, and effort also don't have the downside that alcohol or drugs or chocolate cake. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we're looking at is is what kind of sort of schedule, regimen, call it what you want, can people put together that they like? I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, I discovered some years back when I wanted to lose some weight that lifting weights was actually something I liked to do. That surprised me considerably. But because I liked to do it, because it reduced my weight, because it improved my mood and numerous other things, for six years I've continued to do that three times a week. It only works because I like to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I didn't like to do it, I'd have said, yeah, well, that worked, but uh, and I'd have quit doing it and gone back to being heavier than I wanted to be. Okay. Well, you talked about naltrexone. Do you do you do any other pharmacotherapies, antabuse or camporal or anything? No, don't we we don't use antabuse. Uh, we work with a medical doctor, Dr. Tim Norcross, up at Palos Verdes Family Medicine, and we do not use antabuse because it's simply too damn dangerous. And truth mm-hmm. is, as with most punitives. People just aren't going to take it. We're, mm-hmm. we're not a punitive program. Mm-hmm. Um, we do not use Campro, and actually, Tim was mentioned just the other day that the latest research on Campro that came out last week is that it has no efficacy whatsoever beyond a modest placebo effect. There is no mm-hmm. act benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, uh, where naltrexin doesn't seem to have the required effect, which is maybe in 15 or 20 percent of our clients, he does try Topamax as an acceptable alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing he evaluates people for is, you know, the potential for withdrawal 
and the side effects of withdrawal and whether or not people need to withdraw under supervision or whether they need a four or five day you know prescription for like Ativan or something to mm-hmm. manage the symptoms. Uh, because of the intensity and individuality of our particular program, we highly recommend people who are in any danger of having any withdrawal whatsoever to detox and withdraw a week to 10 days before they start their work with us. Uh, <clears throat> they simply are losing valuable and expensive time if they're you know, having too many symptoms to be able to effectively engage with us for three and a half or four hours a day. Mm-hmm. Now, I found uh, several members of our harm reduction support group have on their own sought out ant abuse, and they use it in a harm reduction manner. Mm-hmm. They, will, they will take it until they decide that they want to have a drinking day, and then they will stop mm-hmm. for a week to let it clear their system. And after yep. the week is up, they will drink that day and go back on the ant abuse afterwards. To keep, so that they can have long stretches of abstinence in between their drinking days. Yeah, there's only one problem with that. I mean, people are welcome to do whatever they want to. I'm not in the business of telling people what to do. The problem with that and where the most deaths occur with an abuse is somebody starts taking it before all of the alcohol has cleared their system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you... Normally, an abuse clear itself clears your system in about three days. Uh, and if you wait a week, that's certainly probably safe. But then if you go on a two-day binge and you accidentally or inadvertently take the an abuse before all of the alcohol is out of your system, you can be in deathly trouble. Well, the, the two people I've known that have done this seem to have been extremely cautious about it and very mindful of it. And it's not something we ever suggested to them. They, yeah. they both came up with it on their own. It's worked for them very well. Yeah, and I've heard of other folks who've done that. I'm just saying, if you're going to do that, remember to be damn careful on the other end. Okay, it sounds like a good idea. What other parts of your program could you tell me about? Well, parts of the program that are interesting, I mean, number of parts of the program are interesting, but some of it has to do with, you know, we're not for everybody. Uh, our website, www.non12step.com, is, has been sort of edited, built, modified, and adjusted over the years, so it serves two purposes. It both screens in the types of clients who are appropriate to, uh, for our program, and it screens out those who aren't. We do not pretend that we're the right place for everybody. In fact, we very clearly are not the right place for everybody. Mm-hmm. Typically, our clients are between their late 30s and their middle 60s. Typically, they're successful in any number of fields and endeavors. Uh, typically, they have a history of success uh, in many different ways. Um, and typically their alcohol abuse has crept up on them over time or it has been in response to a crisis of some sort or another 
and they recognize that they want to get a grip on this. As we say, they want to get a grip and get a life, and then we say, get out of here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <clears throat> but basically, they're people who are are interested, concerned, and not about to settle into powerless victimhood. And so they're being very proactive, and we are equally proactive in coming up with permanent um, remediation of the problem in a discreet, confidential, effective, and affordable manner. So what kind of success rates do you have? Well, again, because we only see about 40 to 44 clients a year, and because our relationship with our clients gets to be pretty close, you don't spend that kind of time during the intensive portion or in the 12 weeks of follow-up without developing a pretty good rapport uh, with people. So we have pretty good self-report rates. Yes, like everybody else, we're kind of stuck with Mm -hmm. self-reports from clients themselves. But our clients are, you know, our clients tend to have those things which indicate success. They're highly motivated. They take responsibility. They tend to have supportive spouses and colleagues, and they tend to follow through on the things that uh, need to be followed through on. That said, our best estimate based on the last five years is that two-thirds of our clients uh, achieve the outcomes they want, whether those outcomes are abstinence, which is the vast majority of our clients, or moderation, which is a minority of our clients, usually clients with fairly recent onset of their abuse issues. Um, Of the third that we see, Half of those we simply don't know. They've dropped out. When people drop out, we assume they've gone back to their mm-hmm. preferred behaviors. Um, we get a couple of clients a year that we refer out to other programs. Typically, uh, they're younger clients in their 20s that we transfer to St. Jude's in upstate New York. Um, occasionally, they are people who, when they appear, actually need at least a brief residential stay. We refer them down to Aton in uh, San Diego. But for the most part, our clients do well. The ones who, you know, have problems are the ones who are being coerced. Uh, we try very hard to screen out those who are being coerced, especially by spouses, and we don't take them. Yeah, when you coerce people into something, uh, just usually it's not very successful. We find in our own uh, support group, you know, people actually have to look really hard to find the alcohol harm reduction support group. So by the time they found it, you know, they they really want to get involved with it and do something. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that's probably true of many of your clients too. That they've had to look a lot to find a non twelve step treatment. Well, and our clients are looking for treatment that is research based is effective, is confidential. I mean, you know, we we see clients who are in sensitive positions who certainly can't afford, you know, an inappropriate alcoholic label that will dog them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. 
especially that's tough when, you know, we were at a conference in British Columbia about two and a half years ago, and the entire theme of the conference was that 85% of the people seeking treatment in the U.S. and Canada are not alcohol-dependent alcoholics. They are alcohol abusers. Mm. And, alcohol, and, you know, yet 98% of the programs in the U.S. and Canada demand as the first step in treatment that you declare yourself to be a powerless alcoholic. Um, our, our clients aren't going there. <laughs> going there. But reality, research, and responsibility, that's the three R's in our program. <laughs> well, I've been, through the, I've been through that kind of program, and... I found that declaring that I was powerless and mm-hmm. being told that alcohol was cunning, baffling, and powerful, well, guess what? Alcohol <laughs> won as long as I believed I was powerless. Well, of course, but that's the reason for declaring oneself to be powerless is so one can always go back to it and not take any responsibility for one's drinking. Um, so, sorry, if, if that's what you want to do, you don't want to come and see us. <laughs> So I started saying alcohol is powerless. Alcohol has never jumped off the store shelf, rolled up to my door, knocked on the door and said, drink me, drink me. Yeah, um, I was going to say, my analogy is I've never walked down the street and had a bottle of vodka grab me by the throat and drag me into an alley and force itself upon me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So for me at least, uh, so learning to say that I am more powerful than that alcohol is is the first step to actually taking control of what I'm going to do with it. Am I going to quit drinking? Am I going to change my behavior so it's not causing problems? I mean, I think people have to make different choices with different things. You can't quit everything that you enjoy or you're not going to be very happy. Well, at the same time, frequently, some of the things we enjoy preclude things we would enjoy more. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not unusual. I mean, hell, it's not unusual for our clients to have had nothing in the way of a sex life in years because alcohol interferes with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they are quite gratified to discover that, hey, <laughs> I like sex better than I uh-huh. like drinking. <laughs> and yes, that yes. helps many people not to go back to drinking, you know. I found, so, for, my, I found for myself that um, cigarettes are too difficult to control and too little payoff to want to try controlled cigarette smoking. So I just quit those a couple of years ago completely. Mm-hmm. Television is something else I can't control, so I decided not to have one in my house for the last 20 years or so. <laughs> okay. Alcohol, I can drink two days a week and be satisfied and not want to drink the other five days. And it's yeah. just easier for me to control alcohol than, than other things. Well, I stay, you know, I stay away from much alcohol because by the third glass of wine, I'd want a cigarette, and I can't manage the cigarettes, and I gave them up for the, la- for the currently for the last time about ten years ago, and I don't mm-hmm. want to go through that again. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's many things I have given up over time that I enjoy. I have given up motorcycles twenty years ago because I decided I'd pushed my luck with motorcycles as far as I was going to. On the other hand, now I'm in the process of restoring an old British sports car. That takes care of some of my mechanical motorcycle kind of urges in a way that isn't quite as deadly for me. Mm-hmm. 
that's a that's a harm reduction option. That, that is a harm reduction approach. Absolutely. Um, I also did uh, with nicotine. I did a harm reduction approach. I can have one or two cigars a month, and mm-hmm. I don't inhale them, and they don't make me want to smoke cigarettes. Well, I couldn't do that. If I had a cigar, I'd be heading for the cigarettes pretty shortly. So that's one where no abstinence is the best rule for me because I've mm-hmm. tried it. That's what works. And finally, after 10 years, I'm to the point where I don't even hardly ever think about them anymore. So, Yeah, I don't think about cigarettes at all. I'm not sure. I did an interesting approach with cigarettes because I had read about the Sinclair Method. Actually, I got the book about the Sinclair Method at the same time that I was planning to quit cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And I got Chantix which is a right. it's a partial agonist, but it basically blocks the nicotine effects. So mm-hmm. I smoked on Chantix for 40 days and kept charting my cigarettes and got down from 25 hand-rolled, unfiltered bugler cigarettes every day to two a day. Mm-hmm. And one day I ran out of tobacco and I decided not to buy more. Yep. So, and well, I'm I, glad that worked for you. We've had clients try the Sinclair route with Naltrexin, and it's never worked for any of them. <laughs> so we have become increasingly dubious about the Sinclair method. Well, I have a couple people on my support group that are uh, telling me that it's working well for them. So Good. as long as they find it's working for them. Um, we recommend people to try anything that they can find, and if it seems to be going good, Go with it. If it's not working, try the next thing down the line. Oh yeah, well, and that's ours. That's why we're put, you know that's why we're putting together a kind of a unique mosaic of things for each of our clients. I mean, it's one of the reasons our client success rates are quite high is because whatever works works. Let's figure out what's going to work for you without any preconceived notions about what has to be the answer. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? I, I know you've been in this field for a long time, so how did you get started? Oh, I got started when I had an alcohol problem of my own in my late 30s, and I was living briefly in Minnesota, and I knew for sure that uh, the available approaches, including AA, were certainly not going to do anything good for me. So that meant I was going to have to figure out how to do this on my own. And frankly, figuring it out and doing it on my own took a couple of three years because there were no resources whatsoever. Um, I thought maybe other people shouldn't have to spend two or three years doing Mm -hmm. what Mary Ellen and I now do in a couple of weeks. Um, And I proceeded to do that kind of as a sideline for a long time, both in Minnesota and then back in Alaska when I went back to Alaska. And then when my two adopted children were out of school and I could go to graduate school finally 20-some years ago, uh, I went to St. Mary's in Minnesota and did all of my master's work on how to quickly and easily differentiate between those people for whom AA and 12-step programs work and who they do nothing for and who they harm. Mm -hmm. And that that got me a master's degree from there. It got me my doctoral dissertation for my work with Greenwich University in Australia. And it had me kind of doing stuff, lots of assessment stuff for mental health centers and treatment places over the years. 
And then about eight years ago, in the course of other work we were both doing, Mary Ellen and I ran into each other and spent about a year and a half or two years talking about doing this and deciding, yeah, that's what we were going to do. So five and a half or so years ago, we opened our doors, and we've been here ever since. Okay, and uh, people people seem to uh, do really well. Uh, the people that that find your program seem to do well with it. They self-select it, and it fits them well. Yeah, and they're, you know, again, they're, they're motivated, they're competent, they're intelligent, they're used to succeeding at things, and they they are inter- they are not interested in being powerless victims. <laughs> they are interested in being what they've been in other aspects of their life, which is research oriented, successful, and uh, and just simply need a little help sorting out efficiently and effectively what is going to work for them personally. Now, earlier you mentioned the St. Jude's, and Mm -hmm. I haven't really researched them. I've encountered them several times. Uh, What do you think of them? Tell me what your opinion. Oh, St. Jude's, yes. We think St. Jude's has a really good six-week program that's excellent for young adults. Uh, We don't take young adults hardly ever. Uh, That is not a group with whom we are particularly successful, partially because of the age distance. I mean, I'm saying <laughs> Mary Ellen's about 55, and, and young 20s is not it. We're we're absolutely the right age to work with people. They're 40s, 50s, and 60s, and we know it, <laughs> and we tend to. So the research is that St. Jude's is the most effective residential program in the country with that age group by far. Um, you can look them up. There's a review of their work on the on the highly unbiased alcohol problems and solutions website that State University of New York Potsdam operates. Okay, Ed, thank you very much for being a guest on our show. You're welcome. Okay, I'm going to hang up on you now. Okay. And okay. We'll okay, bye-bye. And I'm going to do a little bitty blurb again for hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group that supports any positive change for people that want to make changes in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol, available on Amazon. You can find out about it going to hamsnetwork.org slash book. If you want to make a donation to support our work, Go to hamsnetwork.org slash donate. I'm going to bring Stanton Peel on the air. Hello, Stanton. Hello, Ken. How Another are you doing fascinating today? show. I just uh you're giving such a wide exposure to people who have a different what used to be called non traditional points of view, but which are now flowering like a thousand flowers. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's a great service you're performing. It occurred to me that I could summarize the two talks you had today, the two guests you had today, maybe by making five points. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one is that your guests come on and they talk about addiction and treatment from a non-12-step perspective. So we're just opening up the entire uh, vista 
that's been so curtailed and so um, hemmed in for so many years in America. I think the second thing that comes out of their talks is just how individualized people's needs are and the possibilities there can be for them. For example, Dr. Wilson mentioned, uh, really appropriately, that weightlifting is a good alternative for him because he likes it. Mm -hmm. It's not a treatment. It's something that he prefers to do and that each individual has to prefer to do. And your other guest talked about, well, marijuana is a suitable replacement for alcohol for many people, but not necessarily all people. And Mm -hmm. what being individualized means is to understand the range of possibilities and to choose from among them. I think a third thing that unifies the the two guests you had today, and that I think will be true of all of your guests, is eliminating the concept of powerlessness. And it it links to the other things you talked about, because when you give people choices, when you say to them, take a look at your life and think about how you want to respond to your problems, what kinds of activities, what kinds of replacements, substances or otherwise, well you're by definition putting the ball in their court and saying that you're not powerless. I think the fourth thing that unifies your guest tonight and your whole approach on your show is to put addictions, substance addictions, in the context of life in general. I mean, you brought up television. Um, Dr. Wilson did laugh a little at that, but I, I think he understands the concept that all of us are managing a range of activities and habits which can be detrimental in your life or can be beneficial. And addictions to substances really don't belong in a whole separate category. Of course, we're seeing that with DSM-5 introducing first compulsive gambling as an addiction, and now it appears as though they're going to add sex addiction as well. And I think the fifth thing that you're doing, as well as opening up our awareness that drug addictions uh, fit into a wider range of choices and habits that human beings have is to make us aware that it's it's kind of artificial which drugs are called legal and which are illegal, which are prescribed and which aren't prescribed. I mean, some people are prescribed, you know, tranquilizers for to come down from alcohol. Uh, you talked about naltrexone. You talked about abuse. Um, of some people, we talked about Oxycontin. Mm. We, of course, you talked about marijuana. There's a range of substances out there which may be appropriate or successful for a time or for some people, and that range doesn't have that much to do with what our legal pharmacopoeia looks like. It has to do with individual reactions and preferences and options and opportunities and values. So I think those five themes come came through tonight, and I think they really, um, in a way, they can make sense of the whole panoply of things that you're going to have on your show. Ken, I just want to switch bases quickly. It would be wrong for a show on harm reduction tonight to ignore the death of Alan Marlat that occurred earlier this week. Oh, yes, um, I was very uh, shocked and saddened by that. Uh, Dr. Marlatt wrote the preface for our book, and, you know, um, I 
I put him on the, the prayer list for the sick at our church, and now he's on the prayer list for the, the deceased. It's the only thing I could do. It was a shock to me as well. I'd seen him about a year ago at the harm reduction conference in Albuquerque. You know, he looked great as always. Mm-hmm. Um, he has just published a book within the last month or so about mindfulness meditation approaches to relapse prevention. And I just I wrote a blog in Psychology Today, and I just Marlat and I are people who go back over five decades. I first mm-hmm. talked to him. I don't remember exactly when. And he was nice enough to say that love and addiction had led him in the direction of thinking about a unified approach to all addictive behaviors. Uh, after that, of course, he became known in initially widely for his um, think-drink effect, where when he gave in an experiment, he gave alcoholics alcohol or didn't give them alcohol and told them they were receiving alcohol or not receiving alcohol. What determined mostly how much they drank after that was what they thought they were consuming. And any time you introduce such a large cognitive element like that, you're proving that addiction isn't a disease of a traditional type because it involves such a strong cognitive element. And that grew into his approach to relapse prevention where he studied the conditions, the environmental and cognitive situations that led people to relapse, and he devised techniques for combating that to his work in harm reduction, where he does his collegiate program for dealing with high-risk drinkers and prevention programs with high school kids, where he doesn't tell people not to use substances, but discusses intelligently the consequences of use. And a study he published in JAMA in 2009, where he talked about where they discovered that allowing alcoholics to drink in their residences cut in half the medical and social costs they incurred, and they actually reduced their drinking under those circumstances. And finally, bridging to his approach of mindfulness meditation, which has been an interest of his in his own life, I know, for decades. He's an example. He's a pioneer in the field. And, of course, he and I trace our camaraderie in arms back to the time in the early 80s when the Sobel's controlled drinking research was attacked by witch hunters, and he and I were among the few people who spoke up against that kind of book-burning approach. And, you know, we kind of had to circle the wagons for a time there. And thankfully, that period of know-nothingness is gone. So Alan Marlott stands as a, just as a beacon, I think, in not only in the addiction field, but in psychology research. He, he was creative. He approached problems systematically. He wasn't afraid to be innovative and to step outside the boundaries for a guy who was funded by the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. He was prepared to take on harm reduction approaches when virtually they funded nobody else in the country for that purpose. Uh, he just He's such a landmark for what we've done and what we should be doing, um, including harm reduction, that, you know, we really, we need to take our hats off to him and, uh, Ring a few bells for him on Ham's Radio Network. Absolutely. Uh, the Ham's Harm Reduction Network would not exist in its present form, if at all, if not for Dr. Alan Marlat. He's been extremely influential on, you know, on me and uh, on the way I've shaped this program. So, yeah. And as you pointed out, he wrote a, uh, uh, I think, a preface for your book as well. Yes, he, yes, he did. And which is so typical of Alan, 
to reach out like that to people who are doing constructive work, even if they're outside the mainstream or the funding academic mainstream. It's it's just it's a mark of his um, his reach and his grasp and his humanity. Well, we're down to 60 seconds now, so I'm going to close the show next week. Thank you, Stanton, for being here. And next week, our guests will be Dr. Henry Steinberger to tell us about smart recovery, Raquel Algorin, who is the executive director of the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, and Stanton will be back again to close the show for us. Thank you so much for being on the show, Stanton. Thank you, and thank you for presenting such a wide panoply of points of view, Ken. It's a great service. Good night and goodbye. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.